My name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Crime Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. Okay, so this week my true crime headlines are Japan Twitter killer pleads guilty to murders. What is with your social media? I'm sorry, go ahead. Keep going. I love social media. <laughs> like, I don't know Such a what. Millennial. Like, it literally, like, when I hear it, I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, so Japan's so, Twitter killer. Yeah, so this was posted on October 1st on 2020. Um, this is from BBC. Yeah. Um, so a Japanese man has pled guilty to murdering nine people after contacting them on Twitter in a high profile case that has shocked the country. Interesting. Yeah. I I highly recommend reading it because um, I was just like, what the hell? Okay. It just didn't seem like real life. It, it, it literally felt like it was something out of like Dexter. Um, and then my other true crime headline was actually posted on October 7th, 2020. And it is Georgia mom who vanished after Fourth of July party is found dead in her car in busy area, says the family. Oh. This was on People. Um, and one of the lines from the article says local residents told Fox News Atlanta that the area where her car was found is a well-traveled um, road and that it wasn't there on Monday. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye <laughs> right? that one. I need to know more. Yeah. I need to know all the facts. I literally was just like, what? Like, for wow. July, July is like, what? It's October now, so it's like. July, August, September, October. Four months ago. And That's she's just so now appearing. Crazy. That's right? crazy. That's a uh, criminal minds kind yeah, of. That's like banana trees. That's yeah. Blah. Yeah. Blah. So those are mine um, for the week. And I highly recommend um, checking them out because I thought that they were both kind of like really out there. The second one was on people.com? People.com. Oh, I'm looking yeah. looking that up when I get home. All right, Charlie, it's time for your bed crime story. All right. Yes, ma'am. So this week, I am going to regale you all with the fascinating tale um, of the Cleveland kidnappings perpetrated by one Ariel Castro. (gasps) Oh, yes. I know. I know. This is a very, this is a um, non-murder heavy hitter, I believe. So my sources on this story are um, AP.com, so the Associated Press. And Wikipedia.com, my fave. And then also with some information also pulled from CNN.com and from Cleveland.com. So, all right, let's jump on in. We're going to start with our main character, and he is quite the character, Ariel Castro. Um, He was born in Puerto Rico on July 10th, 1960. His parents divorced when he was really young, and they moved to the mainland U.S. Um, He moved with his mother and his his three full siblings. First, they moved to Redding, Pennsylvania. Eventually, they wound up settling in Cleveland. That's where his father lived, and a couple of other relatives lived in Cleveland as well. He had a total of nine siblings, both full and half. So between both of his parents, a total of nine siblings. I'm I'm not going to lie, but I'm from Ohio and I feel like that's just a very common thing in Ohio. I just like, can you imagine Christmas and how many gifts you have to buy? Like that's secret Santa because I'm not buying gifts for all of you. Oh, like when I got my new dog, I told my mom, I said, now I have four animals, but it's still cheaper than having a child. Oh, well, yeah, for sure. For uh, for sure. Okay. For sure. Get it? For sure. For, for sure. sure. Show me with the pun, yo. Okay. So, <laughs> for sure. Okay. For sure. 
Whew. So Castro met his girlfriend, uh, Gramilda Figueroa. She does wind up becoming the mother of his children. Um, huh. Gramilda Figueroa, and he met when his family moved across the street from hers in the 80s. They lived with both sets of parents throughout the years, but then it did eventually move into their own home in 1992. Um, according to Gramilda's sister, Alida, which I love that name, the one character from Orange is New Black's name is Alida, and I just have always loved that name. So, super sidetrack. Um, according to Gramilda's sister, Alida, that is when all hell started breaking loose when they moved in together into their own home. Um, Alida and her husband, Frank, claim that Castro beat Gramilda. He broke her nose, her ribs, her arms. He caused a major blood clot on her brain that resulted in an inoperable tumor to grow on her brain. Yeah, insane. He also threw her down the flight of stairs and cracked her skull open. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, I know. In 1993, Castro was arrested for domestic violence, but he was never indicted by a grand jury. Um, Gramilda moved out of the home in 1996 and she secured custody of her four children in the process. Um, when she was moving out of the home in 1996, the police did come and um, witness her moving out. They detained him as she was moving, okay. but they did not wind up pressing charges. Um, however... Castro did continue to threaten and attack Gramilda after she left him, according to her sister, Alita. Gramilda filed charges in 2005 at the Cuyahoga County Domestic Relations Court, accusing him of inflicting multiple severe injuries on her and of frequently abducting their daughters. Mm. A little bit of foreshadowing, possibly, maybe. Well, how many daughters did they have? Um, you know, honestly, I am not okay. 100% sure. I know that they had four children. I don't know how many of them were. Do- I know he okay. also does have sons, though, so I don't know what the mix was. Okay. Um, Just because I'm like, if it's like one child, I mean, I could. It, yeah. But like, imagine having like three daughters and trying to like, you know, because they were probably at like a decent age where they could. I mean, oh, stay tuned, my friend. So. Oh, sorry. I'm just no, like, no, no, I mean, no. I know what's. I know this story. Yes. When it when it when it happened, I was like. Oh, I know. I needed to know it all. The court did grant her a temporary restraining order, um, but it was dismissed a few months later. So, gotta what? love the system. Gotta love the system. I mean, you, it, I mean, there's like obviously like there's a pattern. There's obviously well, and it's a pattern. like there's reports and stuff too. Like you throw someone down the stairs and crack their head open. Right. It's kind of like right. They should have a restraining order. Like that should have been like the first thing done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Things so, need to be. Things need to be adjusted in this yeah, world. Just a little bit. So. Gramilda died in April 2012 due to complications from that brain tumor that he caused. So, you know. Oh, my God. Good guy. I hope she haunts him. (laughs) Well, again, stay tuned. So, um... Castro worked at, as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District until he was fired for bad judgment. Um, the bad judgment includes making illegal U-turns in the bus with children on the bus, um, using his bus to go grocery shopping. Oh, my God. And leaving the bus unattended while he took a nap at home. So I'm raising my hand. Okay. Because. Yes, Nikki, you had a question. My, my family's from Ohio, and I remember when my aunt moved here. She was terrified to make a U-turn because, like, it's illegal in their state. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's not illegal where we live, but, like, in their state, it's illegal to do a U-turn. Right, right. Yeah. So, I remember, like, I had to, like, tell her, I'm like, you're not going to get arrested it's okay. for making a you U-turn. It's okay. You could just pay attention to the signs. As long as there's a do no it. U-turn sign, you're fine. Yeah. 
at the time of his eventual arrest, so a little foreshadowing, he does eventually get arrested. So that's, I guess, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Castro's home was in foreclosure for three years of unpaid real estate taxes. So, Mm. yeah. So that's a little background on who we are dealing with as far as our perpetrator is concerned. So let's talk about the events um, that are our primary part of our story. So Mm -hmm. on August 23rd, 2002... Uh, Michelle Knight, who was 21 years old at the time, vanishes. She was last seen at her cousin's house. Um, On the day of her disappearance, she was scheduled to appear in court for a child custody case for her son, Joey. Um, He was currently in the custody of the state at the time. Just, you know, it was being shown that she was unfit to perform her motherly duties. So he was um, a ward of the state. Police have acknowledged later on that limited resources were spent on investigating her disappearance, um, in part because she was an adult. Authorities also believe that she possibly could have run away voluntarily due to her anger over losing custody of her son. Um, According to Cleveland Deputy Police Chief Ed Tomba, she was the focus of very few tips provided to police by the public, you know, because that makes you less than, I guess. I don't know. Um, That was sarcasm. Don't know if that read. Okay. (laughs) Just want to make sure you know that I'm not saying she is. Okay. About eight months after Michelle's disappearance on April 21st, 2003, Amanda Berry disappeared the day before her 17th birthday. She was last heard from around 8 p.m. that evening when she called her sister to tell her that she was getting a ride from her job at Burger King. So the Burger King where Amanda Berry worked was very close and within the same neighborhood as Michelle Knight's cousin's house where she was last seen. So similar areas of town. The FBI initially considered her a runaway. Wait, so how many, how how much time had lapsed between the two? Eight months. Eight months. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it wasn't even like a year. Nope, not yet. Okay, so you would think. You figure those dots would be connected, but you know. I think police officers should watch a lot of true crime. I think we need to get them hooked on some yeah. Dateline as well. Please. Yeah. Uh, the first 48. <laughs> if you remember our conversation from last week. Okay. <laughs> not 24. That would not have helped in this situation. Okay. So the FBI initially considered her a runaway until a week after her disappearance when an unidentified male used her cell phone to call her mother and told her, I have Amanda, she's fine, and she will be coming home in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, there's a point um, right after this, or uh, no, that's not true, not right after this, a couple months after this. It was January 2004. So Michelle and Amanda were both gone. Um, January 2004, police do show up at Castro's home, um, which is about three miles from where Michelle and Amanda were last seen. Like I said, they were in the same neighborhood, and apparently his house was as well, or close by at least. Castro did not answer the door. It was presumed that he was not home. The reason that they visited his house was the incident that I mentioned earlier of the unattended child left on his bus when he went to go have lunch. Um, The police did eventually speak to Castro. They did determine that there was no criminal intent. He was just irresponsible and apparently a really bad bus driver. So that was kind of the end of that conversation. Um, A few months later, on April 2nd, 2004, so it was just under one full year after Amanda was kidnapped. So about a year and a half after Michelle, a full year after Amanda, uh, Gina DeJesus, 14 years old, disappears. Gina was last seen at a telephone booth around 3 p.m. on that afternoon. And here's where it gets very interesting. Well, it's all very interesting, but here's where it gets kind of like, whoa. So 
She was at that phone booth with Castro and Grimilda Figueroa's daughter. Why? They were friends. Oh. Castro, yes. So Castro and Grimilda's daughter, Arlene, had called Grimilda that afternoon to ask permission for her to go to Gina's house to have a sleepover. Grimilda said no, so they parted ways. Arlene oh. was Arlene was actually the last person to see Gina before she was kidnapped. She was the last person to see her before she disappeared. Imagine how she feels now. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I know. Like, what the... I know. Like, I feel for, like, all these people's children, like, the shit that they just put them through. I know. I know. It's awful. Because they, they were probably best friends. Yep. Yeah. Or at least close enough that this is, like... Yeah. You're 14 years old, so she's, like, your little friend that you go and you sleep over and you gossip and you laugh and you... Yeah. And you're the last person to see her before she disappears. It's awful. By your own father. <laughs> yes. Oh, um, sorry. No, it's okay. Jump no, in, I'm just saying. Jump in the gun. Yes. <laughs> so um, after she walks away, Castro approaches Gina and offers her a ride home. And she, of course, goes with him with no impression that she's in danger because yeah. she knows him. That's This is the father of her friend. She figures that he's going to take her home. Um, and she trusted him. So um, nobody witnessed her abduction. And an Amber Alert was never issued. Um, so this angered, obviously, a lot of people, more, most specifically her father. Yeah. And he said in 2006 that the Amber Alert should work for any missing child, whether it's an abduction or a runaway, any child would need to be found. We yeah. need to change this law. So. Like a 14-year-old's not, like, they don't have that maturity to make those decisions for them themselves. Even if they run away, like, they still need to be yeah. made safe. Yeah. They're still a child. Absolutely. Even a 17-year-old, like Amanda was yeah. just turning 17. Like, like, I don't feel like you start maturing, honestly, until, until like, you're, you're like, like... 25. Yeah, I was going to say 25. <laughs> 25. Sorry. <laughs> 25. So 25 is like that, you know, you've kind of lived oh, a little, yeah. you've experienced, yeah. like... Like, I understand the legality of being an adult at 18, but no, I, I, yeah. mean, I, I wasn't mature until like yesterday, and I'm 37. Yeah. I mean, the jury's still really out on that. So, um, all right. So Amanda and Gina, so our second two victims, Mm -hmm. were profiled. Because like I said, at this point, Michelle Knight had kind of left the headlines. She was was an adult when she was kidnapped. So she was not, the attention was really not on her. Amanda and Gina kind of really dominated the headlines in the Cleveland area. And they were both profiled on the Oprah Winfrey show and on Montel Williams in 2004. Oh, wow. I love Montel. Um, it's awful. Oh, so wait, wait, Montel's the one that had the like you're the daddy, right? No, wait, no, no, that is Maury. Oh, I'm thinking Maury. Yes. I loved Maury. So fun fact, fun fact about Montel Williams. A little sidebar here for you guys. So a little fun fact about Montel Williams. When I was a freshman in college, they the Montel Williams show producers came to my college campus and gave out free tickets for Montel. Oh my gosh! So we were going to take a train into the city to go see Montel. We were going to go on Wednesday, September 12th, 2001. It was the day after 9-11. Crazy, right? We were supposed to be in the city the next day. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So just a little Montel Williams fun fact for you from the mind of Charlie. All right. So um, so Amanda and Gina were profiled on Oprah and on Montel in 2004, where self-proclaimed psychic Sylvia Brown... I love that Wikipedia called her self-proclaimed psychic Sylvia Brown. Because, I mean, really, aren't all psychic self-proclaimed? I mean, truly. Like, okay. How do you, how do you... How do you, like, prove that? Well, how do you also feel about 
Psychics. To quote X-Files, I want to believe. <laughs> but I don't know how I feel. I, I just feel like I'm like, I can't even tell how I own my, like, myself half the time. I'm like, how am I supposed to tell someone that I've never, like, you know, you like that vibes yeah. that they get? I don't. I don't know. I I, I want to believe. I want to believe, I, too. I find, it, I find it entertaining. Like, I've gotten my yes. palm read. I've gotten tarot cards read. It is entertaining. Yeah. I don't put much stock in it. I say this, but then I'm like, I also like follow some of the horoscopes and the zodiac signs. Oh, well, I'm so Leo. I mean, hello. Um, Okay, so anyway. So Sylvia Brown told Amanda's mother, Luana Miller, that her daughter was dead and she was in water. So this pronouncement by Sylvia Brown devastated Luana. It caused her to take down all of the pictures she had of Amanda in her home and give away Amanda's possessions at the house. It did not deter her from continuing to look for her daughter. Thank goodness she continued to look for her daughter. However, Luana did pass away two years later from heart failure. So she never got it. So March 2006, Luana Miller passed away. Later that same year, on December 25th, so on Christmas Day 2006, her daughter Amanda gave birth to her own daughter at the house where she was kidnapped. And DNA evidence has confirmed that Castro was the father of that child. Yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, so we are going to skip ahead to the women's escape. So on May 6, 2013, Amanda was able to make contact with Castro's neighbors leading to their escape. And she was um, actually holding her her six-year-old daughter in her arms when she was pulled from the home. Um, According to police, Castro left the house that day and Amanda realized that he failed to lock the big inside door using air quotes here. Big inside door is how she referred to it. Although the exterior door was still bolted. She did not attempt to break through the exterior door because she thought that Castro was testing her. Apparently, this sicko Castro had tested the women by leaving the house partially unlocked and exits unsecured. And then if they attempt to escape and he caught them, he would beat the shit out of them. So, again, great guy. Instead, Amanda opens the inside door and starts screaming for help when she saw neighbors through the screen. There was a neighbor nearby, Angel Cordero. He responded to the screaming but was unable to communicate because um, with Amanda because he spoke very little English. There was another neighbor, Ch- Charles Ramsey, who joined Cordero at the house's front door during the rescue. They I love kicked him. and kicked and kicked. There was like a panel in the bottom of the screen door and they kick and they kick the hole through the bottom of the door. Amanda crawled through carrying her daughter. Ramsey said that Amanda told him that she and her child were being kept inside the house against their will. Um, Upon being freed, she went to another house of a nearby neighbor and called 911. Her, the, the, the 911 call that Amanda Berry makes is, it's amazing to listen to like just Mm -hmm. the hope in her voice and it's, it always gets me choked up. And she said, help me. Um, she actually says, help me. I'm Amanda Berry. I've been kidnapped. I've been missing for 10 years. And I'm here. I'm free now. Oh, my God. It kills me every single time. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Absolute goosebumps. So when police officers responded to the call, they entered Castro's house and walked through the upstairs hallway. 
They announced themselves as Cleveland's police, and after peeking out from a slightly open bedroom door, Michelle entered the hallway and leaped into an officer's arm, repeatedly saying, you saved me, you saved me. Now, fun fact. So, Michelle was obviously the oldest of the three women. Yeah. Um, She's this tiny, tiny little thing. She is short, short, short. I want to say maybe 4'11", and that's giving her inches, possibly. Yeah. She's this tiny little thing. And I was watching a documentary. Documentary. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. You gotta say it. A documentary. Because I was going to say docu-series, but it was just one movie, so it was a documentary. I'm totally docu- rubbing off on you. I know, right? Um, I was watching a documentary about the Cleveland kidnappings uh, rescue, and the cop that found Michelle, that he, she like jumped in his arms, he thought she was a child because she's so tiny and because she was so wow. malnourished and so small that he thought she was a tiny child later to find out she was like 20 or like 32 at the time or something crazy like that. Yeah. Insane. Wow. Anyhow, um, soon after he got Michelle out, uh, Gina entered the hallway from another room. Michelle and Gina walked out of the home and all three women plus the child were taken to Metro Health Medical Center in Cleveland. Um, Amanda and Gina were released from the hospital the next day, but Michelle was discharged four days later on May 10th. She was incredibly dehydrated, um, thoroughly malnourished, um, and, and quite beat up, which we will get into, um, in just a moment. So that was the escape the escape which is always wonderful to hear and we're only about halfway through the story Escape. So, <laughs> we're only about halfway through the story so buckle in my friends take another sip of your wine all right so after they were rescued the women started to tell their stories and they talked about all the horrors that took place within the house during their decade plus time that they were held captive um all three of the women kept diaries when they were held captive And they detailed uh, multiple things that Castro was doing to them. So forced sexual assault and rapes. They were being locked in dark rooms. Um, The mental torture of being of anticipating the next session of abuse. They would dream about escaping and reuniting with families. They were chained to walls. They were say they said that they were felt like they were being held like prisoners of war. Um, They missed Mm. their lives. And just like that awful emotional abuse by Castro. He kept, he continued to threaten to kill them. Um, They said that they were being treated like animals. All of this awful, awful stuff. These diaries are just absolutely harrowing. Uh, Michelle Knight, so the oldest, the first of the women kidnapped by, um, by Castro, told police that he had impregnated her at least five times, but had induced miscarriages by beating her with his fists and with dumbbells and slamming her into walls. And he also starved her until she... Uh, miscarried this is the little five. the little little girl well oh my the oldest gosh. who happened to be this little thing yeah michelle would actually require facial reconstruction surgery to fix the damage that was caused by all of castro's beating to her face because he um, probably didn't take her anywhere after so everything probably like naturally healed oh yeah where oh, it yeah. was absolutely they he didn't take her any of them to the doctor or anything no absolutely not um at one point michelle had a pet dog Um, that was very protective over her while she was being held captive. And at one point, trying to protect Michelle, he bit Castro and Castro killed the dog, which (laughs) we're dog people in this room. So this is, that was a, that was bad. Um, I'm going to go haunt him when I I die. (laughs) I'm going to haunt him. Like, I'm going to die so I can haunt him. Again, stay tuned. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah. (coughs) I forgot. (coughs) (laughs) As 
as you do die to go haunted, apparently. Um, yeah. So, okay. I don't so, have COVID, I promise. <laughs> I promise, I promise. Um, so Gina had told law enforcement, Gina was the third, the youngest of yeah. the um, the kidnapped women. Gina had told law, enfor- law enforcement, sorry, my accent's coming out. Wait, what was? Law enforcement. Oh, okay. That's what I said there, law enforcement. So Gina told law enforcement, and that wasn't much better, that though she was raped many times by Castro, she did not believe that he had ever impregnated her. Castro ordered Michelle to assist in the birth of Amanda's child, because we remember that Amanda did have a baby on Christmas Day in 2006. He threatened to kill Michelle if anything happened to the baby, like she's some sort of trained medical professional here. I I don't know. Um, According to Michelle, I had seen on that documentary that I told you guys about, I think that he assumed that because she was a mother that she somehow... Because she had gone through her own birth, she was a mom. So I guess he assumed that she would be able to... Well, I guess my question is, is like, what... Why impregnate Michelle? Why her and nobody? Why? Like, but like have her miscarriage, but then get Amanda pregnant and then have her have like what? I don't know. Okay. I will say, and I'm not saying, believe me, I'm not saying this to diminish the torture that Amanda and Gina had gone through. I'm not saying that at all. But there seemed to be a very special level of torture saved for Michelle, the oldest one of the three. When you watch those docu-series, when you hear her speak, it seemed as though she was definitely the least favored by him and therefore the most Maybe because it was his first? Maybe. I don't know. And like I said, I am not in any way diminishing what happened to Amanda and Gina. All three of those women were through absolute, complete hell. Um... But it does seem as though he saved just a little bit of extra hate to her. And I, I really, truly don't understand why. Um, so he threatened to kill Michelle if anything happened to Amanda's baby. And at one point after the baby was born, the infant stopped breathing. Um, thankfully, Michelle was able to resuscitate oh her. Um, and Castro treated the baby like gold. He would occasionally take her out of the house, including a visit to his own mother. The child referred to him as dad and Castro's mom as grandmother. In 2013, she showed one of his adult daughters a picture of the child and said that she was his girlfriend's kid from a previous relationship. And he had told other people from in the neighborhood or whatever that she was his granddaughter. Amanda did her best to parent her daughter as, as best as she could while in captivity. She set up a little classroom in the room that they shared and taught her daughter how to read and write, um, which I always thought was very, very sweet. The pictures of the little classroom she had set up in her room was, was very sweet. So during his interrogation with police, this is a long one, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> during his okay. interrogation with police, Castro recalled each of the three abductions in great detail, and he claimed that they were unplanned crimes of opportunity. Oh. He believed he would eventually be caught because he did not have any sort of exit plan, because really, what would be your exit plan, right? And re- <laughs> I wrote here, he referred to himself correctly as cold-blooded and ridiculously as a sex addict. <laughs> Just a little editorializing there for you guys. Um, the police actually found a suicide note in the house that he discussed his crimes in and then wrote that all of his money and all of his possessions be given to the kidnapped woman if he was ever caught. But did he have much to even give? His house was in foreclosure. I was going to say, that's why I was like, no. (laughs) So they would have found them soon anyways, because, I mean. You would guess. When your house is in foreclosure, you don't have, it's like, what, a year before they can, like, pull you out of that house? Like, like by force? 
He didn't pay his taxes for three years, so I don't know. All right, so let's move on to the trial and sentencing phase of Castro's sad and miserable life. So, mm-hmm. Castro was arrested on May 6, 2013. Initially on May 8th, he was charged with... I tried to reduce this as much as I could because there's so much information here, so I'm sorry mm-hmm. if this doesn't make sense. I'm going to do my best to make it... Well, I mean, this is, what, 20 years... 10 years 10 years of torture that they had to try him on so i'm gonna do my best to make sense of all this for Mm -hmm. you guys okay so um initially on may 8th he was charged with only four counts of kidnapping including the baby so the three women and the child um and three counts of rape which carry prison sentences of 10 years to life in ohio obviously they were just doing what they knew already happened right Mm -hmm. um obviously additional charges were reported to be pending including aggravated murder for the intentional induction of the miscarriages to Michelle. On May 14th, Castro's attorney said that he would plead not guilty to all charges if he was indicted for kidnapping and rape. I know. A Cuyahoga County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment. Now, this is their first true bill because this was only like the first half of the kidnapping portion of Mm -hmm. the ordeal. So the first half of charges... Um, contained 329 counts, okay? Um, But there were still investigations obviously ongoing. More charges were anticipated. But the county prosecutors were quoted as saying that they were going to be pursuing the death penalty, um, obviously, once they consider the following um, completion of the rest of the indictment charges. So once they get hear all of the charges, then they can take a look to see if the death penalty would be considered. So initially, at this point, he enters a not guilty plea on June 12th. One of his attorneys said that although some of the charges against his client were indisputable, it is our hope that we can continue to work towards a revolution. Not a revolution. That is revolution. I'm going to do that again. It is our (laughs) hope, not a revolution. We don't want this guy to revolt. Okay. It is our hope that we can continue to work towards a resolution to avoid having an unnecessary trial about aggravated murder and the death penalty. I don't think you get to choose that, sir. He noted, we are very sensitive to the emotional strain and impact that a trial would have on these women, their families, and this community. Oh, how nice of you. Castro was found competent to stand trial on July 3rd. So finally, on July 12th, the final true bill of indictments for Castro comes down and it brought the total to 977 counts against him, 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, seven counts of gross sexual imposition, six of felonious assault, and I love the word felonious, I'm going to say it again, six of felonious assault, three of child endangerment, two, because three is Barry, Amanda Barry, uh, Gina DeJesus, and the child, because you figure at the time Michelle was not a child, two of aggravated murder, and one of possession of criminal tools. How did they... So I guess 500 and something counts of kidnapping. How does that? Per day. Well, they oh, do. But I'm like. Depending on day. Like they, they count it by days. It's the same thing with like the 900, like 512 counts of kidnapping. So that's actually less than a day of the year. But I guess it depends on. Yeah. That's why I was like, how do they. Maybe it was the days that in their diary. Okay. I was about to say. Because those are the only days that they can prove. Right. So if they can count how many days in the diary they talk about being held captive. Those are the days that they can prove oh, that he kidnapped them. Okay. This is a total guess. Oh, okay. Because I was like. Total I was like, guess. I really, is, truly don't. Those just seem like really random. Yes. 
like charge like charges as far as like number wise. Mm-hmm. No, I agree, but I think that you can only indict with what you can prove or what you have. Because even with how many rape charges did you say there was four hundred four hundred and forty six? Because I'm like, how would they? Which that would make sense if it was per day. Yeah. Hopefully, well, well, I mean, way, it's awful. Yeah. But okay. Regardless. Sorry. No, you're fine. Um, so one of possession of criminal tools, which I want to know what that means. Yeah. And then uh, what is the criminal tool? His hands, his car, his house. What's the criminal tool? Because all of those things were used for crimes. Anyway, his brain. So on July 17th, Castro pleaded not guilty to the expanded indictment. So he's still holding on to that not guilty plea. Finally, after all of this, after all of the court appearances, after all of the indictments, after everything, he finally made a... Uh, plea deal and he pled guilty on july 26 to all charges all 937 charges or no to 937 of the 977 charges i do apologize because apparently those other 40 were just erroneous who knows as part of the plea bargain called for consecutive sentences of life in prison plus a thousand years um, mm. all, all without the possibility of parole under the plea deal. So Castro did forfeit his right to appeal. He could not profit in any way due to his crime. So he couldn't write a book. He couldn't, uh, do interviews for money, etc. Um, he also forfeited his assets, including his home, which prosecutors said would be demolished. That was all part of the plea deal. Castro was told by Cuyahoga County common pleas court judge, Michael Russo, you will not be getting out. Is that clear? To which Russo responded, or I'm sorry, to which Castro, Castro responded, I do understand that your honor. Then Castro tried to start making comments about his addiction to pornography and his sexual problems, but Russo cut him off and he was like, we'll deal with those issues at the sentencing hearing. Sentencing hearing was on August 1st. Castro was sentenced to consecutive late sentences in prison, plus the thousand years. He also was fined a hundred thousand dollars. Um, before his sentencing, Castro addressed the court. This is where I start getting really mad. Okay. So hold on. Charlie your... just grabbed Jovi. I was like, <laughs> like what is happening this is over where there? I get really mad. Okay. So here is where I want to reach through the paper and strangle this man. Castro addressed the court for nearly 20 minutes in which he said he was a good person and not a monster, but that he was addicted to sex and pornography and had practiced the art of masturbation from a young age. He claimed that he had never been beaten. Oh, I'm sorry. He claimed that he had never beaten or tortured the women and insisted that most of the sex he had with them was consensual. He shifted between apologize. I know he shifted between apologizing and blaming the FBI for failing to catch him, as well as blaming his victims themselves for getting in a car with a stranger, along with insisting to the court that he, when he had sex with them, he discovered they were not virgins. <laughs> yeah. He would alternatively shift back into apologetic comments saying, I hope they can find it in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony going on in that home. The unmitigated gall of this, sorry, irrevocable bastard. I, I was like, my mouth him. is just like. I know. I, I, I hate him. You should see the faces in here, and then you would understand. I know. Okay, we're almost done, guys. I promise we are. Almost oh, you're done. good. We are almost done. So the sentencing judge also heard from Michelle and fa- and family members of both Amanda and Gina. So Michelle was the only one of the victims that spoke at the sentencing hearing, and here's her quote, which is beautiful. She stated to him, 
You took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on and you will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I can never forget. Yes. Mike, a drop, Michelle Knight. Yes. Okay. So aftermath of all this redonkulousness. As part of the plea bargain, like I said, the house where Castro had lived and held the women captive was demolished on August 7th, 2013. Michelle was present. She handed out yellow balloons to spectators and she said it represented all missing children. The balloons were released before Gina's aunt began the demolition with a swing of a crane. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Castro was found. I'm not giving him much attention because I hate him so much. This is the last thing that I will say about him. Castro was found hanging from a bed sheet in his detention cell at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio, on the evening of September 3rd, 2013, only one month into his life sentence. Okay, I was going to say. The cowardly bastard. He was 53 at the time of his death. There was this giant paragraph about, like, um, people questioning exactly how he died and, like, was it really suicide? Was it... um, autoerotic uh, suffocation, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm not giving him any more time. He's a bastard. He killed himself. He's a coward. I hate him. So now that we are done talking about that awful beast, we are going to talk about the survivors. So um, this is going to wrap up our story. So Michelle discussed some of her story in an interview with People Magazine one year after her release, as well as her life leading up to her abduction. Since her rescue, she legally changed her name to Lily Rose Lee, and she began to get several tattoos as her way of coping with the healing process. She also did reveal that her son, Joey, was adopted by a foster family while she was in captivity and that she wanted to see him, but she did not want to bring him into all the things that she had to deal with. Um, So she did plan to see him after he becomes an adult so he can choose whether or not he wants to be involved, which I thought was very wonderful and mature of her. She planned to open a restaurant and she dreams of getting married, which she did in 2016. She also hopes to adopt children with her husband as her years of abuse and torture have made it unlikely for her to ever be able to give birth again. Um, She also planned to reunite eventually with Amanda and Gina in the future, but she wanted to focus first on getting her life back on track. Amanda and Gina received honorary diplomas from John Marshall High School in 2015. In an interview, Gina says that she is currently volunteering for the Amber Alert Committee, offering comfort to families of abducted children, and she remains in contact with Amanda and her family. So those two girls seem to be um, very close. Mm -hmm. In February 2017, Amanda joined the staff at Fox 8 in Cleveland, where she hosts short recurring segments in which she reports missing children's cases or missing persons cases in the area. Um, She does this to help families reunite with missing family members. In April 2019, Amanda did reunite with Charles Ramsey, the neighbor who helped rescue her six years since her, or after her rescue. And, um, They interviewed that broadcast by Fox 8 in Cleveland. Michelle has written two books. One was a memoir about her life leading up to and during the kidnapping. And the second was about finding her way after the rescue. Amanda and Gina co-wrote a book together about surviving their captivity. Charles Ramsey also wrote a book. (laughs) I love Um, him. You remember his video, right? Yes. And it makes me laugh because, okay, it makes me laugh because if anybody has seen the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt Okay, the theme song of the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, because obviously at the beginning, it's women who are kept in a bunker underground and they get rescued by this guy who lives in a trailer nearby. And 
the guy who who's the theme song is dubbing is based on Charles Ramsey. Oh, that's awesome. So when you watch the Charles Ramsey interview, like now having seen Kimmy Schmidt, love Charles Ramsey, right? Obviously. Oh, yeah. But like it makes it funny because of course, you know, Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. They're alive. Damn it. It's a miracle. It's <laughs> I'll say so I yeah. loved just like Ugh, watching his interview. Like that's the thing that I remember most about this was him like describing oh it was like and this white girl she ran into my arms like it was yeah it was very dramatic and very it it was very it's very kimmy schmidt and it's it's very touching but also very funny but he also wrote a book so let's all read charles ramsey's book um there was a lifetime movie release about the kidnappings Mm -hmm. and of course very many tv specials and that is the story of the kidnappings by ariel castro of michelle knight amanda berry and gina de jesus and i'm tired i'm tired (laughs) that was a good one though thank you thank you because a lot of that stuff i didn't know i knew like a majority of it but some of it like i Mm -hmm. i did not know and like i said that's definitely a non-murder heavy hitter i think a lot of people if they don't know the whole story of those cleveland kidnapping cleveland kidnappings they at least know bits and pieces dribs and drabs they know what he looked like what they look like um etc it was everywhere when they when they were found it was such a huge story but um, i actually remember sitting at work typing on the computer and just like reading it all the articles about Mm it yeah but yeah no it was everywhere and everybody knew about the story and heard the craziness and saw the interview from charles ramsey and all that fun stuff so yeah um all right so that will do it for us tonight here at bed crime stories um thank you all once again as always for listening we appreciate every single last one of you please find us on social media instagram and twitter at bed crime stories uh like subscribe leave ratings leave reviews tell a friend tell your mother um gather around the masses uh let everybody know where you have heard these wonderful stories i hope you all have a wonderful night sweet Sweet dreams. dreams our theme song is the song industrial music box by kevin mcleod at incompetech.com licensed under creative commons by attribution 3.0 creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0